0: Guys, it's Mark from Moonlight Game Devs. Today, a to chat with Oscar Clark from Fundamentally Games. We talked about free to play and how he's growing his new publishing business, the kind of games he's looking out for, what makes a free to play game work, and what are some of the fundamentals of monetization and raising the engagement in your game. So, hope you guys really enjoy that. As always, if you did, then please consider leaving a like or subscribe um on whatever platform you're listening to you know it really helps me out and uh, yeah enjoy the episode uh what's up everyone i'm here with uh oscar clark of fundamentally games oscar how are you doing i'm uh, not too bad not too bad at all yeah we actually a uh, bit of the disclosure i guess we can be open about we have to uh, do the podcast <laughs> Don't tell them again. The secrets
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> technical issues um I mean, yeah, you know, we had some no, problems
1: no. with me and my recording. I, I went on to, no, no, it's just one of those little things that happen sometimes.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it's, it's awesome that you, you, you've come back on the show to to talk about fundamentally games, a new project that you guys are doing, publishing. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And, and also I think it's kind of, I mean,
1: a lot of what I do is talk publicly about kind of how to help game developers. Um, Think differently, so they can be more commercial. I'm a big believer in kind of getting your head around the difference between making games because you want to make games, which is perfectly valid, and those who want to make games because they want to be professional. So they want to be able to, you know, make games that people love enough so they can, you know, pay their bills in the same way. So it's a, it's an interesting fine line, though.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, they struggle with uh with that fine line and they kind of they also can't really decide i think they don't make the necessary decisions as well but i think that you know from what i've what i've heard uh from us two chatting as well in your background you're someone who's kind of specializing in that Mm -hmm. as well specializing in things like monetization retention and uh, all these things that um are especially important in the free-to-play world um but uh, how about we start with uh, you know for the people that don't know you, just kind of your your uh, your background in the game games industry and just let you yeah show that. So yeah,
1: so I've been around since the dawn of time. No, won't be not quite that long. But um, I, in fact, the funny thing is, I I keep forgetting this, but I actually made my first ever picture when I was eighteen. Uh, And this is like basically the the late 1980s. I pitched a game, which um, so I've been in that position as an indie developer trying to sort of make a game. And we were told this great line, love the idea. Come back when you've made it. So, all of you who've been there who know what that's like, you know, I was there too. It took me 10 years to get from that to be joining the games industry. So, I'm like 27, I think, at the time. Uh, and this is 1998. Yes, I am that old. Um, and uh, basically, I ended up um, running a thing called Wireplay. Wireplay was an online gaming service with dial up modems. So, basically, I started out as a PC master race kind of ga- gamer um i'm lucky enough to be able to say i saved counter-strike um and that's, that's a, a big claim and it's kind of a joke but it's also slightly true uh, the original developers before they got bought by valve did a lot of testing on wireplay and they ran out of money so i bought them some new computers they then got snapped up by valve but if you, i think it was the fifth beta mm. For, for um, uh, camera strike, the very, you know, 0.5, um, has Wireplay logos everywhere. So if anyone ever finds a copy of that build, I'd love to get uh, some screen grabs. It'd be amazing. Um, you know, I, I paid for that. Um, actually, I didn't get my name in the credits. It's really to my kind of, I've really said it. Right. Um, three of my mates who worked for me at the time got their name in the credits and they didn't tell me for 10 years because they knew how upset i'd be if they f- if i found out that they were in and i wasn't but that's life you know i'm not bitter um so um so obviously pc gaming is a big thing for me as how kind of what got me into it i'm actually a sort of tabletop board game design type person as well that's what i love doing uh, when i can um I got into mobile gaming in two thousand and one, and actually launched in two thousand and three a uh, Java game platform uh, for Three, the mobile operator in the UK. It was actually global lead for games for Hutchison Whampoa, the parent company. Um, so basically, I've been involved with mobile games, you know, proper mobile games since they really got started, long before there was an iPhone, before we dreamed of an iPhone. I actually spent some time uh, at NVIDIA telling people what a thing like an iPhone might do and then kept getting told by Motorola and various other companies, no, no one wants a a smartphone, feature phone's where it's at. Long story. Um, But yeah, so uh, back in the days at 3, we basically did some amazing things, like we did the first ever mobile in-app purchase. doesn't sound very exciting nowadays Mm. because it's new, but at the time, that had never been tried before. Uh, there were still in-app purchasing games. There was things like Maple Story, uh, really, really early on. Um, at, you know, RPG staff doing selling cosmetics, things like that. So it was really interesting what we could learn and apply to mobile back in the day because we had a lot of freedom. Uh, back in two thousand and eight, I joined a little company called Sony. You may have heard of them. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm just trying to be <laughs> trying to be facetious. That's when we come across the wrong way. But Sony were making a uh, virtual world. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a tiny company. Yeah. So we anyway, were making a, a virtual world mm-hmm. on PlayStation Three. So we're talking about the Metaverse now. While we were doing the Metaverse, uh, we had a lot of people who joined from the um, Second Life team. A lot of the US guys on the team were from Second Life. Uh, but PlayStation Home. So I joined as a Home Architect. Um, when I joined, I was told I had three months to basically get it into a shape that could be launched, and it was in no state to do that. So we managed to get it, actually took us six months, but we still managed to launch before you ever saw any free-to-play stuff on mobile. So we had a free-to-play console experience, which was all around virtual world experience, all this metaverse stuff. We were doing that in 2008. Um, I stayed with the team until 2011, when I found out it wasn't gonna go onto PlayStation 4, I was gutted. And uh, the the actual platform itself carried on until 2015. And it finished on April the 1st. And one of the favorite jokes I have for the whole period, because during the whole thing, we were always referred to as a beta. So PlayStation Home, beta. Beta is everywhere. One of the fan communities, who, by the way, stayed up all night until they actually turned the servers off. Thousands of people stayed online until they had it all pulled, until the plug was pulled. But the next day, on online the website of Alpha, uh, oh God AlphaZone, I think was the name of the website, big fan community. PlayStation Home comes out of beta. Just the perfect April Fools' joke. It's April Fools, yeah. <laughs> it was April the first. April Fools' joke, just beautiful. And I and they put a two D joke version of PlayStation Home on their pages. That sort of stuff. Why am I saying it? Because live games, living experiences, are more than just the game. They're about the people who play it and people who love it. Um, So I've done a bit of that. I was uh, an evangelist at Unity. So I basically meant I I stand up and talk for a living. um, And I was the evangelist for Unity ads. Uh, Unity ads doesn't sound like a very exciting thing, I'm sure. But I'm a huge fan of rewarded ads for one reason. You only watch them if you want something. And it's really transformed the way that we can make games because you can actually monetize the game without being an idiot, You know, without being mean. You can create great moments. Now, don't get me wrong, people are idiots and can be mean with the way they use these things. Don't get me wrong. But it, it gives us a new way of engaging with audiences if you do it in a way that's authentic. Uh, so in 2014, I wrote a book uh, on the subject. So I wrote the book "Games as a Service." So I, you know, you want to know about games as a service? I literally wrote that book. Um, so this is where um, fundamentally games comes out of. So we—that's uh, Ella Romanis and I—founded the company, having spent years consulting. Yeah, you know, we, you know, consulting. I know another dirty word is almost as bad as monetization, but we try to help people get a game ready to life. You know, I mean, it's simple, really. Um, And, you know, 22 years of experience, I I know a little thing or two about how to rescue games, how to turn games around, and even just frankly understanding what makes games tick. And so a lot of what we do is really just help people understand, you know, how do you get people to engage with the game? Because you don't generate money from people who aren't engaged. And if you're going to get people to you know, spend, you've got to first get them engaged and retain them. So you can't just throw a game at someone and hope. Hope is not a strategy. You've got to find ways to think about player experience, why they play, what the psychology is, what the, what's delightful, why they should care. And, um, you know, we were doing all this as consultants and realised, you know what, there's lots of people out there who want to get our advice but then don't know how to do it. So why don't we just do it for them? And so we became a live ops company, we raised a small seed round, we have signed seven clients from that. Um, And actually a whole bunch more going on as well. And then, you know, the the same thing kept coming back to us. We've got this great game, but no one's gonna publish it. How do we publish it? Well, we're already doing all the live ops for these games. So what's the extra steps? And it turns out that actually, because we are already building community engagement, doing the next step is really about can we fund the UA? And uh, we've just signed an agreement. So um, there'll be an announcement coming out um, tomorrow, the point where we're recording this um, message, uh, all about what we're doing to create a program to help people test their games before they're launched. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So we're really basically just about helping game developers get their games ready for live, make sure it's tested properly, and then release it and then manage it. Don't just abandon it and hope for the best. We are yeah. actually kind of engage people and go. So that's what we do. We basically help people. We're a living game publisher.
0: Yeah. yeah. Like that's not always uh, the best strategy to kind of put a game out there if you're trying to make it, you know, for a living, right? Having tried Yeah, to I mean, exactly. Problem. I mean, if you want to make a great game, make a great game. But who are you making it for?
1: And if you're making it for an audience, if you're making it for an audience, you want them to hand over their hard-earned cash. They spend a lot of time and effort doing that, but then you spend a lot of time and effort making the game. There is a reasonable exchange level that goes on there. And as long as you find the right way to, to genuinely, authentically make something you know is a beautiful piece of game craft, there's nothing wrong with expecting people to pay for parts of that. Now, a lot of people dis-free-to-play because they think you're trying to squeeze money out of people. That's just the wrong way to look at it in my head. I'm going to give my game to you for free. That's not a bad offer. But if I do it well, and I have things in there that you want, that you actively desire, that you are willing and interested in, in giving me money for, I want to make sure that what you buy for that is worthwhile. The reason it's going to be worthwhile is because I want you to do that again and again and again and if it's rubbish or if it's cynical or if it's just bad you're not going to do it again so Mm -hmm. i honestly genuinely believe that to do free to play means you want to make a better game i know i'm not in the majority when it comes to that but that's my intent as a designer i want to make better games because they're free Mm -hmm. because i want you to want this game so much that you are willing and desire more things from me because if i can make the experience of how the game works match the way that you pay for it i can do more of it mm-hmm. and if you genuinely love that game the more that i get that right the more i can engage and build that game further anyway that's kind of the way i look at these things
0: yeah i, see, I think i see that as like the biggest. Um positive thing about free to play is is you're not getting someone to pay up front and you also have that c- continuous uh revenue that allows you to build upon the existing game and, and improve it as well and, and figure out what's yeah. wrong uh, and don't
1: get me wrong people do really rubbish jobs at that sometimes i mean they're very cynical kind of like um bait and switches going on there you, you've seen it Yeah, you know here's an advert showing off a game that's nothing like the game i'm actually going to take you oh, to but yeah. when you get to the game the game that you see is okay, and it's in the rough, broad line that you like to do, and there for your player. And then you find yourself watching ads and doing other things. Yeah, it's fine. It's a it's money, but it's not really. It's not. It wouldn't make me feel like I'm uh, fulfilling myself by making a game like that, personally.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a bit. I think a, a bit sketchy to have those ads, which don't, which show fake gameplay, but.
1: Although it's interesting. We've learned from doing those, from seeing people do those ads, we've learned that we can actually do some really interesting things to make it easier for game developers to test their games before they go live. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of people, particularly the hyper-casual folks, are doing like a 30-second gameplay trailer based off the back of a kind of game jam version of an idea. Mm -hmm. The game doesn't exist yet, but what you do is you put it up on a Facebook ad, you, you pay 150 quid or something, to run that for a few days, and you see how many people click to install. The game doesn't exist yet, but it allows us to know whether you'd be interested in it. So if we know you'd be interested in it, we can then try to build that game in more detail. And If we check, say, 10 different games, and we then decide which one we're going to pick, it makes it so much easier for us to actually make sure that we get the right game.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, do you guys use like, um, I don't know, it's like, I think it's called Geek Foundry or something where you kind of mock the app store?
1: So the way we, we tend to do it is, you know, we, we create a unique page for it so we can check the Google Analytics stats of people who visit it. Um, but obviously the intention is to keep that page open so that we can use it for when the game does go live. And obviously not all of the games are going to go live. But the nice thing about it is that we can work out what's working and kill the game early. So if we if we know what's going to work and what's not going to work, it saves the developers so much time and pain making games that doesn't have an audience. So it's, it's really important to me that we we find out what players actually want to play. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's a tough one. It's, it's a tough one because, you know, historically what we've done is we've sat in rooms with big whiteboards going, right, I think our audience is this, and I think we're going to talk about this kind of game mechanics. We're going to have this kind of retention strategy. We're going to have this kind of monos- whatever it might be. Just guess what? You know, you think about, um, I remember, was it Eight Days, I think was the game that was being developed by Sony, and a lot of the people on the team from for PlayStation Home had come from that. I think it was basically the similar team that would made the Getaway 2. I can't really remember. But it was amazing how much, just a huge volume of resource and effort, manpower, cost that were put into making a game that was just killed. Oh, it's just tragic. It's just tragic. All of that passion, that desire. And of course, they didn't know until they got a long way down the making of that game that the game wasn't going to work yeah um, i've been called it a few times for certain games companies where they've asked me to review the game and say well what? and they may have spent some years into it frankly i've done this with some games it's hard to kill your babies you know when you've got a game that you love how do you call it you know to call it to a close when you know there's something in it it's really hard to decide to make the call to kill it and i think The more we can use objective information, actual get data. Do people choose to install from watching a video? Simplest thing possible. How long do they keep playing it if you give them a playable version? Can you get somebody to play it who's not connected to you and give you a recorded transcription of what they actually did when they played it? These kind of techniques are standard, but we're now pulling those together into a campaign and a program so we can actually help developers get ready with the right game to go live.
0: Mm, yeah, it makes sense. You kind of talked about doing consulting work uh, as well, helping game development companies improve their game. And uh, you were just mentioning some of the strategies there to validate, kind of validate the game kind of in a hyper-casual approach, yeah. um, either making a quick game prototype, checking, you know, what is the kind of cost to get someone installed install the game in terms of showing them ads? Um, mm-hmm. but like when it comes to the other aspects of live ops and um, getting people to retain and um, stay in the game and also monetize like what kind of things and mistakes have you learned from your consulting days that you hope to improve oh,
1: so many or- so many mistakes <laughs> but there, are, there are so many the bottom line is starts with this why do they care It always starts with this who is it for and why do they care um if you don't know who your players are and what they care about in your game, there's no way you're going to make a great experience. So first and foremost, you've got to actually care about your players and there's no exaggeration to that. I mean, you literally can't, you know, you've got to be really dedicated, you can't pretend that you know, you've got to actually get to know your players properly. So that's the first step. Then you've got to think about the rhythm of their play, you know, what's the cadence in which they play. And quite often there's like a daily, weekly, maybe even monthly cadence, possibly even quarterly cadence of activities. And understanding the right kind of activities that players will want to do to sustain their interest is going to be really key. So you don't want to bombard people with messages every day that aren't relevant to them. But you also might want to find that a daily challenge is useful. You know, if your game is the thing that your player goes to to relax if that's what they're doing, you want them to have a little perky hello that says something to them. Hey, yeah, look, oh great, I, I see you're here. Oh, and it may not be kind of a perky hello, it might be whatever the tone of the game is, but you know, you know here's a challenge, here's a thing to do, here's the reason to be here. And if you do that predictably, then they are expecting it, anticipating that thing that's going to come t- tomorrow. So we tend to look in kind of like daily challenges, weekly themes, well, actually more monthly themes, but weekly kind of events, activities that are collaborative as well as competitive. Um, There's a great thing I saw with a game called um, uh, Art of War. A Chinese uh, company um, uh, did that game. I I actually really loved it. I was um, playing it a lot before they actually asked me to take a look at the game um so i was actually a, a, a already a, a three-month-in player of this game and then i got to consult in it which is fantastic so i got to see the data of where they were going right and wrong. one of my favorite things was this um activity where you would basically fight cerberus so three-headed monster you've got to send your armies against the three-headed monster the clever bit was the monster had a certain number of health And then after it had run out of health, it would die, and everybody who participated would get rewards. That meant that I fight, you fight, everybody else fights. But you only got to fight it once every, I think, 12 hours. So you didn't really get to engage enough with it. But what's worse is its health was set so low, it was gone in about two hours. So this fantastic idea of a collaborative event, which we all compete together with to get this thing was over too quickly. But it showed me the real opportunity. It comes when you think about using games collaboratively in a way that doesn't necessarily have to be real time multiplayer. Imagine you take a leaf out of Pokemon's book. You've got the red faction, the yellow faction, the blue faction. Now, there's questions whether you should use those colors. If you've got colorblind audiences, it's a bit tricky using red and blue and yellow, blah, blah, blah. You know, yellow, black, and red or something might be better. Anyway, take your pick. But uh, the idea of three fixed factions and you're assigned to a faction automatically, but maybe you can switch it once for free and maybe you pay to, fix, uh, to switch another time. But now I'm automatically enrolled in a social endeavour. I have an expectation set upon me you don't have to participate with really, it, but there's a sense of expectation there. And let's say every month there's going to be an activity. Does red, green, or blue get to unlock the next champion? So you can do that as a kind of way of doing narrative unlocks. So you may have a kind of linear story, but which team is currently in the lead could be set by this kind of seasonal activity. So let me step back a bit. Remember we said we might have these daily challenges, we might have these monthly themes, these sort of period activities. Now let's put another context in. Let's say it's Halloween. Now I can offer you content that goes with the theme, that goes with the activity, that hopefully creates incentives and excitement about the experience. Maybe even creates things that I want to get, some things which I can only get if I play, and some things I can only get if I buy. Um, So Halloween is a great example for me because week one, we had the first batch of content, some of which we have to play to earn, some of which we can choose to buy. Week two, we get the next batch of content. So now we can get weeks one and two's content, but we know week three's content's coming too. We get weeks three, and then in week four, we know we're getting to the end of the month. We're we're basically heading to the last week, and there is going to be a point where this stuff is no longer going to be available because Halloween is going to be over. Now I've got a fear of missing out, and that can be a positive thing. It's not it doesn't have to be seedy and negative, but if I know there's a time frame, I now have a call to action. I have a reason to engage now rather than wait which creates an imperative, creates a desire. And to me, this is the heart of what I think living experiences are about, is understanding what players love, finding predictable ways to deliver it, and to create context for that delivery. So you can create events and promotions, you can release new content, you can release new features, and tie it up in a shared common narrative for the player this sort of sense of a common law that we as players share because we've been there, we experienced it together. And ideally, we experienced it as blue faction versus red faction so that when we sit down and talk about what we love about this game, I can rile you because you're blue faction, I'm red, and we beat you last month. That tribalism is actually really important for you know, really feeling passionate about games. Oh yeah, not every game is going to fit this model exactly, but as a as a kind of way of thinking, a lens to consider living the living part of the game. What I'm really trying to show you is what's important about living games isn't just the mechanic, the thing that you do, or even the context, the sense of purpose and progression. It's also the metagame, but the things that aren't gameplay, the things that are more about how we as a community engage, that the game enables. And and that that kind of extra layer, that metagame layer, and people use metagame to describe all sorts of things, but for me the metagame is that higher level, that social engagement, that's a cultural element of the game. It's even the lifestyle fit and the mode of use and the way that the devices players use change the way we engage with the game. And that's kind of what makes me passionate. And that's why, you know, while some might sound cynical sometimes because I use shorthand language to describe how you monetize things, actually what I really care about is creating amazing experiences that are sustainable.
0: Hmm. I think, like in live games as well, and and uh, last time we talked, we talked about this as well. Like one of the things that's important is to have data to kind of understand what's going on in the game, and and like you said, f- figure out what's kind of working when you're doing these live events, and and try experimenting within the game. What's your kind of approach to to data that like you feel like a lot of game developers could be doing better? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, particularly when I was consulting, one of the biggest problems we had is that people just don't know why data matters and how to create good uses of data. So, for example, one of the most common mistakes I see is people do a whole bunch of random data events, like level one starts, level two starts, and there's three separate bits of data, which means they're not comparable. So you can't actually kind of go one versus two versus three in a nice easy format. Instead, what I try to get people to do, it's actually taken from this kind of crazy um, thing I learned from the food industry. It's called HACCP, hazard analysis and critical control points. It's a it's sort of it's the mechanism that the Pillsbury Dough Company and NASA used, so they could feed the Apollo astronauts on Apollo Eleven. Because you know, if you think about it. If you're going to feed Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, you don't want them to rip open a food packet and die of food poisoning. You know, that's the last thing you want to do. They've got three days or whatever it was to to get from Earth to the moon. If they die in mid-process because you've got the food wrong, you're in big trouble, aren't you? So they thought, how do we make sure that there's guarantee that the food that they're going to open on day two isn't going to kill them? And what? so this process, I mean, just long story short, the process is basically about stepping back through every possible stage of the route from the food being collected to the food being eaten and looking at each point in the journey well we do this in games ourselves it's called the first time user experience or the fatui or whatever acronym you want to call it but that first time user experience is about understanding how you go from the first using moment all the decisions that they make all the way to the last so Well, let's start creating ways of collating data that marries against that. So that's why I have an event. So that's the decisions that players make. And then I have parameters, so the data around those decisions. But the trick I've learned is you want to have the smallest number of meaningful decision points that are comparable, because I want to create funnels. So if I have level starts, I'm going to have which level it was as a parameter. I'm going to have session ID as a parameter. I'm going to have match ID if it's a multiplayer game, so I can compare and infer information about other people who are also playing in that gameplay. So having this comparable model means it's a lot easier to track what on earth's actually happening in the game. Because at the end of the day, there's no point in having data if we can't do anything with it. So if we're trying to work out what players do, why they do it, we need to be able to look at the patterns of play in a meaningful way. And frankly, any game, whether you're making a service game or not, if you don't look at why people are dropping out, how can you actually understand what's going wrong? How do you make the game better? Now, key to this is you've got to pay attention to GDPR, you've got to make sure it's anonymous, but you don't need player data, you need player choices data. And the big difference of that is I actually want it as an aggregate. I want statistical significance. I don't want individual numbers. It's not it's easy to say that it's harder to do that in a way that's sensible, but we should not be reliant on information that is down to individuals. Not just is that creepy, and you know something which is needs to be appropriately protected in terms of privacy, but also because just frankly, it's not useful. You know, if we see people behaving in a particular way, it could just be that they didn't get it. I mean, I'm sorry, but you've got to get used to the fact that not everyone's going to get your game, as much as we might like them to. You know, um, for example, I have to own up, I'm a game designer who doesn't particularly like Mario. I respect Mario. Don't get me wrong. I respect it. Just I got bored of platform games with
0: Chuck e. Egg. And yeah, have been of them too.
1: I, I just I, I I Pixel Games, sorry. I was there when they did it the first time, not the eighth time round. And as a judge on things like the Big Indie Pitch, actually I'm regularly a regular judge on, the number of times I see the same bloody pixel art and they tell me this unique pixel art. Really? Really? Unique? Um, I, I Don't get me wrong, I'm not a diss. I, I have been surprised. There have been great games that have pixel art that I have liked. It is true. I own up to it. But what's always made that stuff work for me, and I'm, I'm on another tangent here, but it does feed back into some of the basic principles. It's understanding the audience and what they care about. If your audience cares about pixel art, then fill your boots, go for it but always have something that you're bringing to it. Why, are you, why is your implementation of that meaningful? And and you shouldn't be judging that. You should be letting your players judge that.
0: When you talk about um, first-time user experience, have, have you kind of seen that as a focal point in, in terms of um, what really gets people to enjoy a game and what's most important to kind of um, get right so that people can get into your game
1: yeah i mean i I actually break a game down into like five stages so first stage is discovery you find the game and then you're going to have a barrier to overcome to get them to continue playing and that barrier is often you know the paywall so do i have to pay for it Uh, it, but it's also do i have enough space on my device Uh, do i have enough time to look at it Uh, does it excite me so you've got to have a level of excitement and anticipation to get people to get past the discovery stage to actually install the game. So that's the first design challenge you've got. And you know you've got like three seconds or so to get people's attention. You know, there's there's no time. You know PC games maybe a bit longer, but you know mobile games, if you don't get me straight away, gone. I'm just gone. I'm out of here. Um second stage, you've got their attention. Great. That's a massive, massive step forward. Now they're going to start learning how the game plays but they're not just learning how the game plays. They're also learning how the game fits into their daily routine. And as a result, they're going to have the worst possible experience they're going to have when playing your game because they don't know the controls. They don't know where it fits in their daily routine. They don't have any emotional commitment to it, except maybe if they've already paid, but even then there's question marks over that. So our job as a designer is to get them to engage. I know it sounds like trivial, it's really not, but that's where the first-time user experience comes in. If your first-time user experience sucks, and frankly, if you make me do a tutorial, in fact, let's make it worse. Let's go back to, I think it was Watch Dogs was the worst one I remember. Um, was it Watch Dogs 1 or 2? Anyway, I think it was 1. Um, you pressed X to continue the story for four and a half minutes. Four and a half minutes before you actually got to play anything. I cannot believe, in fact, on any platform other than a console, I would have thrown it away. Yeah. It sucks. It's boring. It's indulgent. Let's get players what they want and let's make that great. So getting that first time experience is really good. If you make me feel like it's a tutorial, you can bugger off. Um, actually, this is where I do have to you know, tap my hat to Nintendo, Nintendo are the masters of this piece. Uh, their three-part model where you introduce a new feature, you get the player uh, a level to then master that feature, and then you challenge them so that it's a more difficult process before you introduce the next feature. That three-part process is magic dust. That's absolutely the heart and soul of making good tutorials. I hate making tutorials, but I often end up having to because you can't assume, you know, you've got to find ways to engage people. But there's one thing I think it's worth chucking in here. It's not just the first time user experience you should think about. You should think about the second time user experience. So not just the onboarding for the very first time you play, but what happens the next day? What does it feel like to come back day two and play? If you make it burdensome, if you make me go through hoops that I've already been through, I'm out of here. You've just lost a player. So thinking not just about the first time user experience but the second time user experience is really important. I'd also say thinking about the lapsed user experience. So Breath of the Wild, one of the best games I've ever played. Love it to bits. However, I'm the sort of player that will play it for maybe a month or so, then stop. And then six months later, I'll try and go back. Breath of the Wild I use as my example because Breath of the Wild is impossible to go back to because by the time you go back to it, you've forgotten everything and there's no way of relearning it. You have to go back and restart. So I've tried that four times. Four times! I, I shouldn't compare this. It is a brilliant game, but I'm using it as an example. And some of you will know what I mean when I say it. So think about... What happened? I mean, we shouldn't assume that players are going to play our game all the time, but if they do come back, that we want to em- embrace them. And if we do want to embrace them, that actually will have positive effects for people who are not as obsessive gamers as us, as designers. In fact, the whole point of this process is thinking about how we make it scalable by making it accessible to more people than just people who are obsessive game design types. So that's just taken us past the second stage. The learning stage. Then we're in engaging. So now we're engaging. Okay, Fortunately, the rest of this, these stages are easy. If someone's engaged, that's great. We've got to feed the chain, but we don't want to get into the, ah, the treadmill, the content treadmill, which um, is a very difficult thing to do. Instead, what we want to do is find ways where the content itself is configurable so that we can make slight changes this is the daily weekly challenge stuff we were talking about earlier if we can engage people by using configurations by using extensibility by making sure that we're doubling down on the replayability of games now we can have an engaged audience especially if we can then tie that into a sense of purpose of progression and maybe even things like an economy you know I'm a big fan of the hot dog economy model so what I mean by that is If you think about something like The Long Dark or Fallout 76, or don't starve, any of those games. What they all do is they basically have such a kind of gradual eating away of particular resources, which means that you have to go off and gather those resources, stockpile them up before you can go and make the next leap forward in the game. And then you have to go and capture more of those resources to get back to some equilibrium. That is what I call the hot dog um, economy, because it's a bit like when you buy hot dogs, you get eight of them. But when you buy buns, you get six. So you've got this imbalance, right? I've run out of buns. Now I've got to go get more buns. Oh, I've now got too many buns. I've got to go get more hot dogs. It's this imbalance, which actually is the heart of a lot of great game mechanics that sustains interest. And if you're going to have monetization in that, you've got to be careful that you don't break the purpose of play because you make everything viable. That doesn't mean you don't make anything viable because that's equally going to break some people's gameplay because not everyone's going to have the time to gather all those resources. And sometimes they just want to play. So why not let them, whether it's through ads, whether it's through pay, whether it's through subscription, whatever it is, Find the right equilibrium. Let that tell a story. And then create that anticipation and a sense of unfinished business that makes them want to come back tomorrow, the next day, and the next day. And if you get that balance right, all of those things right, that's where you find the super engaging. So this is our fourth uh, yeah, uh, our fourth group, the super engagers. Now the super engagers are what people used to call whales. Do not use the term whale. Whale's horrible. Don't do horrible. Um, the reason it whales horrible is because it refers to gamblers. <coughs> a whale is a person who goes to Las Vegas with something like $50,000. I joke not. And they stay until they have spent it all. Their fun is to see how long they can stay. That is their fun. They know they are going to spend all of that money. I, I did run a gambling service at one point. I didn't like it, but I do get why people do it. Um, not my, not my cup of tea, but there is something about understanding why that process works. And we should learn from that. But we should also learn why games are different. Games are not about the you know, how much fun we can get by squeezing all of our money out into one time. I know we're going to spend huge amounts of cash. Or on the false delusion that we will get our money back because anyone who knows anything about the lottery knows it's a um, uh it, it's a tax on the mathematically challenged um yeah, you know, sorry i can't remember whose quote there is it's a lovely line though um you know the the point for me is that we have to think about experience and why we're looking at super engages is because actually if you think about it how many things do you actually really love you know um, you know, I, I love hats. I will spend lots of money on hats. Does that count? I'm not sure. Um, I'm a huge, I mean, if anything comes out which has got, I don't know, D&D in it, I'm probably going to buy it just because I love D&D. Um, there, you know, there'll be certain things that we all just love that are our hobby, not just a thing that we play. And when we're looking at these super engaging audiences, that's what we're looking at. That's not cynical. It's finding the things that they love and finding ways to deliver the more of it that they want and do that in a way that's genuine and that's where i think the real opportunity lies in these things that's why we see um people spending thousands of dollars in games well you know how many people how much would someone spend to go to you know room fest or or comic con you know how much time and effort would you put into making a costume um, I remember going to uh, San Diego Comic-Con a couple of years ago as The Tick. Really good. Um, but I, I was happy to do that. Um, yeah, maybe not good for other people to watch it, but it's you know, um, the subject. But the point was that that's a passion thing. And I want to indulge my passion, and I think that's okay. Uh, then the last stage is re-engage. Because... Not everybody's gonna stay with the game all the time and sometimes they're gonna lapse and how do we prevent them from lapsing? Well, actually, why don't we spend time making sure that we give people a reason to come back? What's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that. So anyway, that's why I like to think about games. It's like, I think about them as a journey, a life cycle, that so you go from discovery to learning to engaging to super engaging and then re-engaging. And then we have to accept that people leave. That happens. You know, we try to give them the best possible ride where they're p- other with us. And we hope that they love our game enough so that when we come up with something new that they're also going to love, that they trust us enough that we're going to make a great game.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Thanks for, for sharing us, um, you know, about the, the live ops uh, design philosophies there, many of them, I think. Um, I want to kind of talk about, like, your publishing business as well because you guys are, sure, are sure. helping people with this with this publishing. So um, what does your kind of um, typical client look like? You say you already have some people that you're working with. So um, mm. you know, what kind of studios are these and what kind of it, games if, are they building? Yeah, it varies quite a lot. I mean, we're interested in living games.
1: Um, so that means we're looking for games that are going to operate as long-term services. That's our ideal. Uh, there are a couple of game teams we're working with at the moment who are early stages where they're testing the waters, but essentially what we're really after is finding ways to help take them so they've got a long-term extendable life cycle. Um, That means that you need games that have replayability. It means that you need games that have, you know, a sense of purpose and progression. It means that you've got games that have the potential to have these kind of, um, you know, socialized engagement layers, community-led experiences. So we spend a lot of time, the way we, we basically work with teams is that we, we talk to them, we get them, you know, we bring them on board, we basically take them through a readiness process first. So we get our game design analyst, and I sometimes do this as well, basically tear the game down, really kind of you know, brutal, like this, 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 this. These are working, these are not working, these are working, these are not working. We try to work out what the minimum deliverable needs to be. Now, I know that's a cliche, but I'm a huge fan of the MVP, the minimum viable product. The reason I'm a fan of that is because I think that me mi- minimum, i.e., small and viable, both have to be applied. You can't just have something small and hope it's gonna work. You've actually got to have something small that works. And the other thing is, and again, this is maybe me as a designer, I love having services because I can defer. Uh, features I, I should kill to a later release. I never have to kill a feature again. And I love that. I love the fact that I can basically put together um, a roadmap of features, because you need features regularly, not necessarily every month, although I like to try to have new content every week and new features every month. But what I'm trying to do when I'm helping a developer is trying to work out what do they need to do first. The reason for this is simple. I don't want to spend too much money. I want to know that the game is viable. So we're going to test it. We're going to do these kind of tests we talked about earlier. And we're going to make sure that, that game is rocking. And we're going to get those smaller things right because it's a lot easier to get a smaller, cleaner, more described game experience to work better than it is to get a large, woolly, kind of cumbersome beast to work. So let's get the basics right first, and then let's build on them. And then let's build an ongoing relationship with the players so that we take them with us and that we know that they're buying into what we're doing to improve the game as we go along. So that's really what we do. That's our, so our philosophy for, for publishing is very similar to our philosophy for live games because it comes down to this simple message we are trying to get more players doing more things more often and for longer. And that really is at the heart of it. So that means obviously we're gonna do things like creating community activities. Well, we're gonna do that from within the game and outside of the game. But by being a publisher, that's also gonna do the marketing for that game, we can align the marketing with what's happening inside the game. That means we can tell stories about what's happening in the game and take the audience in the game with us, but also tell the audience who are not in the game what they're missing out on. And they can see that we're delivering on the promises we've made to our players consistently. I'm a big fan of uh, the TV show Columbo. And I use Columbo as a metaphor all the time. Columbo is a 1970s detective show. Some people may have heard of it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very famous. And a, a lot of TV people say it's the best TV show ever made. I know it sounds a bit hard to take, but there is a reason for it. So, picture this. Columbo, at the start of the show, we see who the murderer is. So it's a whodunit where you know who did it. Why would you watch that? The reason is you are not watching for the murderer. You're watching the detective. What you're looking for is a moment about five minutes before the end of the show where Columbo will turn around and say just one more thing. You know he's going to say just one more thing to the murderer, and you know that's the point where time is up. You have to have worked out how Columbo solved it. Not who did it, but which of the various randomized clues that Columbo decided was the reason why that guy was the murderer. And of course, he's always right. If you get it right, fantastic, I won the game. I won the game of Columbo. I guessed right. If you guess wrong, oh, that's surprising. I'm delighted because I got it wrong. So if you think about what the metaphor that that means for games, we want to create experiences where people are looking forward to something and they are delighted when they're right and they're delighted when they're wrong. we want to create that experience where they fill every moment of play with an expectation that anything in the game experience could be meaningful. We don't have to make everything meaningful if we leave the expectation that things are meaningful. In fact, one of the things I think it's really important to get to remind people of, particularly when it comes to monetization, people don't buy the goods in the game. They don't buy a power up. They buy the expectation of what the power up will give them. They buy the expectation of how they feel when they use that power-up and they have the resulting success. That's what they're buying. So even when you buy the Sword of Wonder or the Hat of Delight or whatever it might be, you have that anticipation, that expectation. That is what you're interested in. And so if if we learn the lesson of Columbo and apply that to living games... We have to have this continuous series of expectation, unfulfilled, you know, um, sort of unfinished business is probably a better phrase, um, un- unfulfilled desire that leads you to want more. Knowing that more is coming,
0: predictably, because that
1: predictability is really key. Does
0: that make sense? Absolutely. Thanks for, for sharing that. Really interesting Um <laughs> yeah explaining all, all, like I've, I've definitely learned a lot this episode <laughs> uh, but I kind of want to kind of want to start wrapping up things as well um, yes we've of course have been talking for a very long time so um, what, would <laughs> your, uh, what would be kind of your what would kind of where we're game developers let's say I'm, I'm playing a, a live ops game or just want to get in touch with you because you guys one of your guys advertise yourself as being partners for even earlier uh, let's say just raise the seed round I want to test some games with you guys um you know, because you guys do work with, with game developers at that really early stage, contemplation stage, if I understood correctly. Yeah, uh, yeah that's right. Yeah, then uh, where, where's the best place to find out more information? Get in touch so
1: just them. go to fundamentally.games. Um, nice and easy. You can find us there. You can Google Google me. You know, Google Oscar Clark Games. Always say the Clark in Games, because otherwise you're going to get the Oscars, which is like, no, <laughs> far too busy. Um, I, I'm, I'm pretty much around there, but we've also got a knowledge base on that site, so all the sort of um, YouTubing stuff that we do. We do a lot of webinars, you see. Um, I did recently did one on how to build a business model. So if you're making a game and you want to raise money, you've got to tell your investors what you're going to make. Well, how do you know when you haven't released the game yet? So I did a talk about that. We've got um, a whole bunch of things like that we do. And then we try to keep an archive of that so you can go and just get free information about how to learn to make games. <coughs> we also do a... Um, um, Uh, a kind of report on on games so if you've got a game that you think is a living game or has the potential to be a living game (coughs) particularly where you think there's a kind of extensibility and replayability in your game just go on sign up submit your game nice and easy uh we're actually making an offer at the moment not only will we review games but the best submission we're actually also going to uh, give them a free um uh, one hour workshop as well. So we'll actually take them through that game and help them, you know, you know, hands on. Uh, obviously, there's no commitment in that. It's really just about us helping the people we think are the best games, and hopefully, you get to see what we do as well. Uh, in terms of engaging, when we find games, we come to terms with the, the teams. That's when we get involved with the readiness test I talked about earlier. And that's really the best way for us to help. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, feel free to check us out. Um, you, If you go to any games conferences, you won't be able to miss the hat. Um, <laughs> famously uh, uh, on stage a lot of the time. Of course, <laughs> getting to a games conference in person at the moment is a little bit tricky, but at least there's a few digital ones out there. And about.
0: Yeah, stay safe, everyone. And also exactly. uh, important, I guess, to add is, is um, that you guys uh, are not a publisher that funds the games, but you guys do like RevShare. Is that correct? Is that
1: yeah. So the, basically, um, the way we work is that we fund publishing and user acquisition. And that includes our user acquisition testing program to make sure that your game is ready for it. So uh, we think a lot of game publishers get involved too late. And they basically want you to prove that the game is already working and already successful before they'll put any money into to support and scale your game. So basically, you end up taking all the risk, but we, on the other hand, will actually get involved early, and more importantly, we'll also run live ops, and we do that as part of revenue share as well. So all of our ongoing engagement to get you ready is part of that process. Now, um, we we for some people they they need more help than we could possibly do, um, you know, as a kind of. Just, just to publishing, I mean more, more fundamental help. We can do that too. We still do a few bits of consulting too. But in general, our aim is really tell you what you need to do to get to the point where you're ready to work with us and make sure that you've got some of the really important stuff like getting your data capture right, getting your kind of engagement model, getting your replayability right. And so we can do that, get that tested and make sure that your game is ready
0: for live. Awesome. Thanks, uh, thanks so much, Oscar, for coming on. And uh, yeah, take care, man.
1: Good stuff. Great. And, and, and I'm glad the
0: recording worked this time. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> hey, guys. Mark here from Moonlight Game Devs. Just a quick reminder, if you enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving a like or subscribing on whatever platform you're listening to. Uh, it really helps me out a lot. You know, It shows me that you guys like the content. And uh, yeah, I hope you guys have a great week.